Welcome back, my friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are more than 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. Today's new episode features Don M., whose podcast, AA Grapevine Podcast, impressed me as true AA service work. Together with his co-host, Sam, their weekly half-hour podcast is an entertaining mix of AA member stories, humor, and discussion. I've enjoyed listening to it and admire the commitment that Don has invested in the show. Of course, I wanted to hear more about his own story. Like most of the interviews I've done over the past two years on AA Recovery Interviews, Don's tale is fascinating. Though he didn't start to drink until his late teens, his first drunk was the harbinger of things to come. Drawn to the quixotic allure of the hard-drinking, tortured artist, Don's painting created a solitary lifestyle that nurtured his growing alcoholism. Ironically, painting houses became his chief means of funding his daily drinking in neighborhood bars. Though alcohol consumed more and more of his life, Don still managed to function well enough to support his growing family, but his drinking inevitably became the source of major damage to his marriage. Half-hearted attempts to stay sober over the years consistently failed. Finally, as the hole he excavated was taking on the appearance of a grave, an unexpected realization about Don's alcoholism and its effect on his young son provided the moment of clarity Don desperately needed to change his life. He quit drinking and went to AA the next day. That was 28 years ago. As he attended meetings, worked the steps with the sponsor, and began to sponsor other men, Don's journey in AA steadily improved his life. Though true spiritual awakening didn't occur for him until years into the program, he persevered and gradually found spiritual connection from which many gifts have arisen. Taking him through both tragedies and times of struggle when he wanted to drink but didn't, his sobriety has demonstrated the impact of a well-worked program. Don's long-term marriage and other gifts over the decades provide proof against doubt that the program really does enrich life one day at a time. Don's story is both informative and captivating. Even if you've been able to piece it together by listening to his podcast, I think you'll enjoy hearing it in the context and emotional resonance of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. So get comfortable and enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes with my new friend and AA brother, Don M. I'm Don. I'm an alcoholic and I'm letting go just as hard as I possibly can. Hi, Don. Welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Say, that's a, quite a tagline you've got there, letting go just as hard as I possibly can. Uh, how long have you been using that particular tagline? <laughs> I, I guess about five or six years. But, I mean, I heard someone else say it. The idea of bearing down on letting go, this was what my problem was when I first came in. Uh-huh. And the whole idea of surrendering and letting go of everything is like, what are you talking about? How can you live that way? Yeah. And a guy said to me, I was describing my process and I was like, okay, so I am letting go. And I'm really every day <laughs> I'm letting go. And he said, you know, I, th I think letting go is not so much about 
bearing down. <laughs> and that was like revelatory to me. Yeah, isn't that something? That you, we say simultaneously, hang on, hang on, man, hang on, let go, let go, hang on, let go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate you taking time to do this uh, interview this morning. You and I really don't know each other except from the standpoint that I came across your podcast, the AA Grapevine podcast, and you and another fellow by the name of Sam have produced what I think are some really entertaining and very interesting podcasts. It's a kind of service that 10 years ago would not have been possible. But how long have you been sober, Don? I got sober May 30th, 1994. So that's 28 years? 28 years. Wow, that's incredible. So let me ask you, a guy with 28 years, what made you decide at, let's say, 27 years to embark on a service commitment like having a podcast? Well, Sam and I started a, a podcast called The Boiled Owl mm -hmm. Coffee Club uh, or The Boiled Owl Recovery Podcast. And it's still available. We did that for about five years. It was every other week, an mm -hmm. hour long. I like the interview because in telling our stories, we we know there are certain high points that happen. And and it's nice for the interview to go to different places in mm -hmm. recovery. But we were both going to a men's meeting every Saturday morning here in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And after the meeting, we go to the coffee shop and... We will have these incredible conversations about recovery with other people that would join us and mm -hmm. just go to places that you can't go in a meeting. And we kept saying we ought to record this. So I, I was working out of town in Florida about seven years ago, and I was isolated all alone in this beach house. I'm a mm -hmm. decorative painter mm -hmm. and I was painting a mural. So I was all day, all by myself. And the only contact I had with other people were the wait staff at a restaurant. And there was a meeting that I could get to on Thursday night. So a long time without a meeting. Mm -hmm. And it was getting to me. And, uh, you know, I've been sober a long time, but if I don't go to meetings, I get squirrely. Not that I want to drink anymore but that I'm not right with the world. So I was going, I need to listen to a speaker tape or something. There must be something on the internet. And that was early days of podcasting. And I found a podcast. Most of them were not anonymous. People seemed to be promoting themselves very strongly mm -hmm. and uh, with having the person out front. And that bothered me because it, it's not in AA's traditions. And I felt like, well, we ought to start a podcast. Yeah. We've been talking about it uh -huh. in the coffee shop. So that's what we did. And the format was really to sit around and just like in a coffee shop and have a conversation about recovery. We've been doing that and honoring the traditions. Mm -hmm. It started four years ago from the floor and it moved up through the process to the general service to GSO. And to the delegates, and they were saying that the AA needed a podcast, and the yeah. Grapevine board decided they wanted to do a podcast, and they began looking at ideas for that. One of them listened to the boil down, said, these guys are honoring tra the traditions, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel, so yeah. why don't we get them on board? So they, they called us, and I can tell you, my head exploded when that <laughs> happened, because... Bad. 
I was like, what? The AA Grapevine wants me to do a uh-huh. podcast? Oh, my goodness. I can tell you that when it got through and got accepted, we were going to do it. So we started developing it. And mm-hmm. I was talking with my wife, and she knows that she's been with me since before I got sober. She mm-hmm. stayed with me through the whole process. And I've always been in bands, and I've always been like, a real talker and out front. I've been, I write plays. We mm-hmm. perform plays. I uh, just do all kinds of things. And she, and she said, Don, you've been spent your whole life trying to get famous. And now you're going to be famous, but you've got to be anonymous. Anonymously famous. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> so it's true. It keeps my ego down here. But yeah. it's a real it's a real honor to do it. Yeah. And, and it's quite a commitment, too, uh, especially since you're doing it weekly, right? This is weekly. And I produce it. And Sam and I interview people, but it's directed by the board, Grapevine board. So yeah. we're not the ones uh, generating all the content. We have a lot of help with that. That's amazing. I've found in doing the AA Recovery Interviews podcast, finding people to interview has not been difficult because I, I've been in the program for almost 35 years now, and I've been a very active member not only locally, but in other, especially with Zoom in other parts of the world. So I've had the opportunity to interview people really from all over the world. And when I very first started out, one of the biggest questions that was asked was about anonymity and how do I maintain anonymity. So I, I did a really deep dive on how do I do it according to AA's traditions, according to general service office guidelines for protecting anonymity online. And, you know, there's nothing within any AA guidelines or within the traditions which says that AA people should not talk about AA outside of AA. What it says is that the message can be out there as long as the anonymity of the person who is who is saying it is maintained at the level of radio, press, TV, film, internet, whatever it is now. And so I've been very careful over the years that I've been doing this to make sure that not only are people's anonymity protected personally, but I also make an effort to edit out any references <clears throat> to commercial enterprises such as treatment centers and even clubs for that matter, because one of the things that was expressed to me is that not every club wants to be identified. I made a decision early on that people could talk about their club or their meetings. The names of the meetings are not as important as the name of the club. And so far, it's worked out well. Out of out of all the interviews I've done, I've never had any feedback uh, concerned about that. I think it's probably right in line with the way that you guys approach it and the way Grapevine's uh, board looks at anonymity for you guys, too. So there's really nothing new under the sun, but it has worked out pretty well. Anonymity is very tricky. It is. But, you know, I go back to what Dr. Bob says, quoted in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. We want to be known personally in our community and inside of the meetings. So inside of a meeting, I'll use my last name because yeah. I want to be known, as he said, by the community. How are any is anybody going to find us? But at the level of press, radio, and films, at that's the line. Yeah. Above that line, we remain anonymous. Below that line, we're not anonymous. 
So it's tricky to do. And I think that the, that podcasting or anything on the Internet above the line of press, radio and films. Right. And and especially now with uh, as ubiquitous as in, the Internet has become and podcasts in general, I've listened to some podcasts that just openly violate the traditions. And I'm sorry to see that. So my commitment all along since the beginning has been, irrespective of what other people do, I'm going to maintain uh, the anonymity and the principles of the traditions as, as much as I can. So you're 28 years sober now, and you said your sobriety date was in May? Yes, May 30th. That was Memorial Day weekend. So what was happening on May 29th in your life at that time that made you decide, I think I'll go to AA tomorrow? Exactly what it was. It was a Sunday. It was a Memorial Day weekend party. Mm -hmm. We had a guest list for a party we were going to have. And I altered the list so that it would be our friends who really drank a lot because I needed to get drunk hmm. and I could feel it. And I wanted, I didn't want to stand out. So I wanted all the drinking people because I spent the last four years of my drinking in bottled hell, trying to control it. I spent four years trying my best not to be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I could see it, but I was, I'm not, I can control this. I fail, I fail, I fail. So we had this party and boy, it was great. I was drinking away <laughs> and I had a uh, cooler full of beer mm-hmm. in the back porch and friends were over. We had dinner. We had a deck on the back of our house. And I went out and sat down uh, on the deck where everyone was gathered around in a circle all around. And my son, who was six years old at the time, mm-hmm. popped up and ran across the deck and sat down right next to me. Mm. And my neighbor said, you know, still gets me choked up. You know, he watches every move you make. And the veil was lifted and I could see plain as day that he saw that I was I was not fooling him. Hmm. He saw that if I came home from work mm-hmm. happy, I started drinking. If I came home from work frustrated, I started drinking. If I came home from work bored, I started drinking. No matter what, every day I drink. It's like I'm not fooling anyone and I'm not, I'm, I'm only fooling myself. And I know inside of myself that I cannot control this. And if if I do not do something about it, because I had tried everything, I had tried therapy. I thought mm-hmm. maybe if I could get into therapy and I had this sense at the time we were going to the Unitarian Universalist Church and mm-hmm. there was uh, a group that was doing meditation there. And I tried that and I would try to meditate and breathe. And I could sense that there was a knot inside of my stomach Mm -hmm. that I couldn't let go of. And I knew that that's what I was drinking at because I would drink and I wouldn't feel that. And it was anxiety. It was fear. I can identify it now. So I got into therapy to try to understand that. And then I wouldn't have to drink out of control. Mm -hmm. 
well, it didn't work. And I learned all about my past. I learned about my family of origin, as they say. And I learned all about the things that make me feel ashamed and the thing and how badly I was treated. It sure gives you a lot of things to blame your alcoholism on, doesn't it? Self-knowledge doesn't do it. Right, exactly. And I completely understood that ball that was in my gut. But it did not touch the drinking. So somewhere that moment of clarity that you had with that veil lifted when your six-year-old son was sitting next to you during that party on the deck, it finally got through to you. But along the way, you had obviously you had known this or you wouldn't have tried to stop before. When did you first start drinking? As soon as I left my parents' house, it was not uh, okay to drink in my parents' house. So mm-hmm. it was uh, I was 18, 19 years old. I moved out of the house and immediately started drinking and loved it. It I would only drink once a week yeah. on the weekend, but how to describe that is like, um, it was pretty soon all I think about. And there was one thing I would sing on Fridays. It may be unhealthy and it may be a sin, but by this time tomorrow, I'll be three sheets in the wind. <laughs> and I used to sing that to my work, co-workers. Oh, um, and I would get... Um, That's some alcoholic pride going on there, isn't it? it? I'm very, very proud. <laughs> well, you know, when I was in high school, there was something about alcoholics that was very attractive to me mm-hmm. and i'm an artist and, and i was reading a biography of the the italian painter modigliani and i read about his life which was debauchery he would drink to excess they have models and he's mm-hmm. like you know having affairs with all of his models and he would get drunk and he had no money and his dealer, his, his art dealer would, would give him a stipend every week and he'd pass out in the alleyways and his um, art dealer would come find him and, and help him and get him painting again. That was like, Oh, wow. That's what I want to be. What is going on with that? What a way of life to aspire to. It was like, I can just be, lead a life of excess and creativity is the way I saw it. And let somebody else take care of everything. That's, you know, that I think that's what was attractive about it. I don't know, but, you know. That was my ideal, and I achieved it. Yeah, I get. I, yeah, I get that. And and you know, I had I had similar ambitions too when I got out of college. Was I just wanted to be able to make enough money to afford enough booze and drugs to stay the way I was. Yeah. Many of my guests started smoking pot or drinking when they were thirteen, fourteen. That seems to be the the median age of most people starting. In your family of origin, growing up, was there anything that kept you from wanting to drink? Was there any drinking going on, but you just made the decision not to do it? Why, why did you wait till you were 18? My parents didn't drink, and they frowned on it. They weren't, like, fanatics about sure. it, but I was an extremely good child. Mm. <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not want to do anything wrong, yeah. um, and it's still a problem for me. I, you know, yeah. I Everything's got to be right. I don't want to break any rules. And and uh, as soon as I got out of the house, it was like, oh, I, I don't have to follow these strictures. Yeah, a whole other world. Which are kind of rules I made up for myself. I get that. So how did you get through high school 
without drinking. It wasn't a problem. I mean, I had no idea what a golden, wonderful thing drinking would be. And so I just didn't do any of that stuff. And the first time I drank, it was like, oh, this is it, <laughs> you know, and it was and it was for years. It was it enabled me to feel right in the world. I did not feel comfortable in the world. It wasn't until I found alcohol that I did feel comfortable in the world. Is that a feeling that you had growing up? Because I know I felt left out of the world myself when I was growing up. Everything seemed to be going on, but I didn't seem to be a part of it. And a lot of people I know in the program, they grew up with that sense of isolation or loneliness or feeling not wanted. What were the feelings that you had when you were growing up that might have culminated in that which you drank to overcome later on? My first sponsor said uh, that he always felt like he was dropped into the middle of Chicago with a map of New York. <laughs> and 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 that's that describes it. I, mm. I, it was like I was not comfortable in the world. The thing about this is I'm going to answer your question, but after hearing thousands of speakers, I really don't think that anything that happened to me in my childhood and growing up has anything to do with my alcoholism. Mm. I think it's physiological, mm -hmm. and I drink because once I taste alcohol, mm. it is the solution for me. That's the feeling, and and I've heard people who had horrible lives compared to what I had and people who had much better loving um, affirmative parents and, all, and it doesn't make any difference once they start drinking they're alcoholics so we're going to find a way to drink if we're alcoholics mm -hmm. but in my case I think I my personality is uh, you know I'm anxious mm -hmm. and uh afraid to break any rules and want to be liked and uh, and all of that. So I really was taught that I need to be happy. And there is no appropriate emotion other than being happy. Uh -huh. For example, when we moved from Bowie, Maryland to Greensboro, North Carolina, when I was in third grade, as we were moving, we got all got in the car and drove away from the house and my mother said there's going to be no tears this is a happy move huh. and i was like oh okay well this feeling that i have of sadness i'm leaving all my friends and all it's like that's not appropriate i'm i'm not supposed to feel this mm -hmm. and to live not feeling my emotions mm -hmm. and for emotions which just rise up in me sure to understand that they're wrong yeah and i should not have them there's a real recipe for anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And it's a real recipe for the desire for relief from that feeling. Yes. And, and alcohol sure acts on that feeling very, very quickly, doesn't it? It does everything. I'm happy. And in fact, the very first meeting I went to, they were talking about making amends. Mm -hmm. And I went to that meeting and I was like, I have no idea what this is about. This doesn't apply to me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. <laughs> but I knew that I had to quit drinking. So yeah. there's something going on here. They were friendly and you know. Yeah. 
And I went back home. My wife was on pins and needles. And she said, how was how was the AA meeting? <laughs> she was very anxious, understandably. She yeah. spent years with me yeah. um, drinking. And then here I am actually going to an AA meeting. And I said, well, I don't know. They were talking about making amends to people for stuff that you've done there. You've harmed people. I never harmed anybody. Yeah. I'm a happy drunk. I've always been a happy drunk. And she started crying. And, and I, um, and I saw how much I'd hurt her. I was oblivious to it. Well, when the frame of mind and the feedback you're getting from your parents is that I shall not feel that way, I shall feel happy, where there's no connection to happiness at that point, you need to feel the feelings mm -hmm. that you're feeling. But of course, we don't realize that or learn that till we're in AA. No. But that sounds mm -hmm. like uh, a very, very difficult uh, thing to go through. Could you walk us down the road a little bit from when you started drinking at 18 to uh, significant milestones in your drinking career that defined a portion of your life before you got sober? I started off drinking once a week, mm -hmm. and within a year, I was um, drinking every day. Mm. I had a girlfriend three o'clock, I said, let's go get some beer. Mm -hmm. And she said, why do you need to get uh, beer every single day? Can't we skip today? And I was going, <laughs> well, I'll just get some. You don't have, you don't have to drink yeah. it. And then and I, I got out of that relationship mm -hmm. because it's not going to work. It, you know, I think I can describe it by the relationships I had. Mm -hmm. And then I had a, another girlfriend as it, as it progressed and I drank every day. Mm -hmm. I go to happy hour after work. Mm -hmm. I would um, not be able to leave mm. happy hour. And I was a, at that time an exterior house painter. Mm -hmm. And I was in my paint clothes dirty coming in from ha to happy hour having the best time um and i couldn't leave and i would look around the bar and it would be 10 o'clock at night and everybody the whole bar has changed and everybody's all dressed up and they're on their dates and all and i'm still in my paint clothes <laughs> drunk as can be and um it was like oh i gotta go home take a shower real quick and get back so I was in a relationship that was a long, long-term relationship there for a, about a year or so. And we were living together and uh, she invited some friends of hers from work home uh, for dinner. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal for her. Mm -hmm. And I went to happy hour and six o'clock was dinner time. I got off work at five and I said, I got time to stop by happy hour for one. Yeah. I kept watching the clock and I was going, this guy's... I got 15 minutes. I can make it <laughs> 15 minutes. And you know, I had one more beer and then raced home, broke into the back door of the kitchen there. And she's cooking and she said, where have you been? Mm. And I was going, it's not six o'clock. I mean, I've made it on time. When out of the blue from nowhere, she said, that she had to move out. She couldn't do this anymore. Hmm. And I was, I had no, I was like, what is the problem? It was total surprise to me. Had she been saying that all along, but you had just not been hearing it or? She had not been saying it, 
but I couldn't see what I was doing. There were little things. There were like that, like that, uh, different things. So she said, you know, I'd like to do like something like watch TV show at night. I would, I, I don't have time for that. Hmm. I've got to, I'll just do something together. Yeah. You know, I'm an artist. So I had to paint at night and get drunk every night and I'd go to the happy hour, come home and it's like, uh, I wasn't there for her. I I had no ability to connect with another person. So your lifestyle didn't match up with hers at all, did it? My lifestyle matched up with a single guy who's an artist running around like a lunatic. It's what it didn't match up with being available and intimate emotionally mm. with another person. I would, had no idea what my own emotions were. Mm. She said she was going to break up. It was the bottles on the nightstand every night that she couldn't take. Yeah, and and I, that didn't make sense to me. It's like, how do you fall asleep without a beer? I, it's like, you can't do that. I, I couldn't. It, it was all a mystery to me, and it killed me. But I did not understand that whole thing until I got into AA and looked back on it and could see. So it was a stark reminder to her on a daily basis, seeing those bottles, what it was about the relationship that she didn't like. It wasn't working. Yeah, it was like that was my interest was those bottles. It wasn't her. I mean, my interest was her. It certainly was, but I I just couldn't be with another person appropriately. And there was... Um, sneaking around and yeah. sneaking down the alley with Sally and she wasn't Sally. Yeah, I get that. Well, that's that's a fairly common practice for us alcoholics, especially when we're deep into our cups. How did you find that particular pattern repeating itself over the s subsequent years? It was all the time. Uh, it, yeah, it was. So I met my wife and we had been going out for maybe about six months, and and we were really um, matched. And we started talking about getting married, and she said, but, you know, I am not going to marry an alcoholic, and I think you're an alcoholic. Well, this offended me to oh, no man. end. What are you saying? I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. She said, well, if that's the case, quit drinking for two weeks. I'm I told her she was a stick in the mud, which always gets me when I read that in Two Wives. That exact phrase is in there. <laughs> I, I used it. And uh, I said, okay. And so I quit drinking. And I proceeded to make her life miserable for the next about three days. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not drinking. And that's all because of you, I'm not drinking. And you think I'm an alcoholic. Well, I'm not. And just miserable. And um, about midweek, she was going, look at you. You're like, you're miserable. You're awful to be around. So then I had to hide that. And I did that, and um, Saturday rolled around. That had been been one week, and I was going, good, at last. And I got a 12-pack and started doing some artwork 10 o'clock in the morning. And she came home, and I had the music cranked up doing artwork. And she said, what are you doing? You're drinking. And I was going, well, what? And she said, we said two weeks. And I said, no, we didn't. We said one week. And I believed at that moment 
mm-hmm. that we said one week, and I knew full well that we said two weeks. Yeah. Both things were true. What I could always do when I was drinking is like, go, Oop, nope, this other thing's true. But that kind of thing got to me. Yeah. What was the outcome of that situation, though? When when she had said two weeks, she married me. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm wondering. What was what was there about you that changed to the extent that she was willing to marry you, or did she just change her mind about the man that she was going to marry being whatever it was she didn't want him originally to be? I am a lovable guy. <laughs> I can see that. So I can she, see that. <laughs> she just went with it. <laughs> you know, she talked to me about my drinking occasionally. Eventually, she quit. And um, I didn't know it. But years later, I found out she went to Al-Anon. And she stepped back from my drinking and quit writing me about it. And, and when she did that, then it turned on myself. It's like, oh, OK, well, now I... I really have to control this. And that's what led to that four years of bottle tail, because it's like, I'm not going to be an alcoholic. Yeah. I, and I had a friend that was in AA who came over. We had listening parties. We'd get together and listen to music, uh-huh. uh, class, classical music. Yeah. It was a great deal of fun. and I, But it was hard because he quit drinking. So I was determined, okay, I'm not going to drink tonight until I just don't want to overdo it. So I'm only going to have two beers. Mm -hmm. So I held off on that first beer and I kept, okay, I can wait a little bit longer. And then I still hadn't drank. And he said, well, I'm going to have to go. I was going, oh, don't go. (laughs) I'll drink if you leave. (laughs) No, no, I wanted to drink, but I want permission to drink by drinking with him. And I just like blown the start time. This control thing was insane. It was driving me crazy. Trying to control it, especially using someone else to help control it, makes it difficult. You know, one of the things that occurred for me, and I know a number of men that I've known over the years, and in my case, it was certainly this way. Their wives came from an environment where either one or both of their parents drank or there was some heavy-duty alcoholism in their lives growing up. And I always got the sense that one of the reasons why women who are coming from an alcoholic background marry men who are alcoholics is to try and fix a problem now that they had no control or any ability to fix when they were younger. What was your wife's background? Did she have any reasons to marry a guy who was alcoholic to try and deal with whatever had happened in her family of origin? Uh, There was no drinking in her family. they're Southern Baptists, and and uh, we're not. She was she was pretty. Re- she was very rebellious. Really? She liked it. She could drink with me, but when our son was born, she quit. Hmm. And at one point, he was like a seven years old. Would crawl in the bed in the morning mm-hmm. with his big happy smile at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm alive. I'm alive. I was in AA at this point. And she said, you know, I don't think mothers can't be alcoholics because there's just too much responsibility to be available for your child. I know some mothers who are alcoholics. You're not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So she was she was able to drink along with you. But when she needed to stop, she stopped. And, and now she'll drink. She's one of those 
half a beer. And we went out to dinner to a Mexican restaurant and she got a margarita and she drank about half of her eyes get real big. It's kind of fun to watch her drink one drink. She drank half of them. She was going, she looked at me and said, there's something in this drink. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a margarita after all. <laughs> So how how long were you guys married when you had your 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 uh, your son? We were married a year. A year, okay. So sometime during that year, did she bring up impending parenthood? I mean, did did she suggest to you that you do something about your drinking if you were going to be a father, or was that a subject that didn't get raised? I was doing a job, and the guy that I was working for said that his wife was pregnant, and. Uh, he quit drinking to support her because she couldn't drink during the pregnancy. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's a little bit severe, isn't it? I mean, I just thought that was <laughs> ridiculous. So no, but I felt it. See, here's the thing. I didn't want to end up throwing up in the morning. I I didn't want to have hangovers and not be available. Mm-hmm. There was one I was just, I just thought of this recently looking at some old photographs of my son and my wife out in the flowers in the front yard of our house at that time. And I remember mm-hmm. I think it was Easter Sunday and I remember that Sunday mm-hmm. because I was so sick that I, I was in bed yeah. till I don't know, 11 o'clock. And they, and I got up hmm. and she said, Oh, we've been having a wonderful morning. And I was just like looking through this white gray haze and, you know, beads of sweat are breaking out on my forehead. And I, there's something wrong with me. Why do I have to do this? And so that's why I, I tried to control it. And I, I knew it was there. And I had two friends who were in AA, and they seemed to be doing better. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. You talked about a four-year period where you struggled with it before you came into AA. What approaches did you try during that four-year period? Why was it that you waited for four years before you finally took up the mantle of AA? Well, it was it was four years to give up. If I had, I could mm-hmm. have come into AA a couple of years before I did. In fact, I had I went out twice with a friend who was in AA to mm-hmm. talk about AA. This is the most amazing thing to me. I wanted to feel him out about AA because I knew I had a problem mm-hmm. and. I knew I couldn't quit drinking, but I didn't want to do AA. No way do I want to do that. 
I knew that AA is about never drinking again. At least that's what my thinking was, you know. (laughs) I didn't Uh know about one day at a time. And when I did learn about one day at a time, I was going, that is the most stupid. You think I'm so stupid that I can't see through that little trick? (laughs) You're really talking (laughs) about the rest of your life. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, So I I went out with him a couple of times, and he never invited me to an AA meeting. He knew me well. He told me hmm. all about it. He said what it meant to him. It's like incredible 12-step, only about himself, what a how he surrendered, yeah. how it works for him, and never said, hmm. why don't you come with me to a meeting? Because I didn't ask him. I would not ask him to go to a meeting. So he planted plenty of seeds there, though, didn't he? Planted he planted seeds, and he, I don't know, somehow intuitively knew that the right thing to do was not do that. Because when I finally called, I said, I've got to go to a meeting. And I was committed at that point because I had. So what I think is like those last, particularly those last two years were me slipping in a, if I'd come to AA, I would have drunk again Yeah, because I wasn't convinced that there wasn't some way I could control it. When I came to AA, I had failed so many times at every possible other way of getting sober. Yeah. In fact, I came to AA and I thought that the the God thing was impossible for me. I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. I'm, this idea of surrendering to God. What there is no God, and what what am I going to do? Pretend I can't do this? And I started looking for other things although i was a spiritual guy yeah i was in the unitarian universalist church i was doing meditation and stuff and i was doing affirmations but affirmations are me affirming to me that i can fix myself and aa is something outside of myself that i reach out for help I can't fix me with me. Right. And I had a sense that all of that these affirmations and things weren't working. I found a secular sobriety. I went to one AA meeting and, mm-hmm. I, and I was going, I'm not doing this. And I looked for secular sobriety and they were in a town that was 45 minutes away was the only meeting of that that I could find. And also I felt I know AA works. I know people in AA and I've tried all, everything. Yeah. So I went back and uh, when I went back the second time, when I went back the second time, I had a friend who was a drummer and he was in bands like I was in bands and in the same scene I was in and he had gotten mm-hmm. sober. I knew, so I knew he was in AA. I wasn't really good friends with him, but I knew him in the scene and he had quit drinking. I knew that he came into the coffee shop in the mornings around nine o'clock every day. And so I sat there and stalked, (laughs) staked out, waiting for him to come in. Uh, I was sitting in the window and the cash register was about 15 feet Mm -hmm. away. And I said, Gary, Come over. I got to talk to you. He said, I can't right now. I've got to go. I'm really in a really big hurry. And I was going, well, I need to talk to you about something important. I wish I could. Let's get together. And I was going, well, 
I went to an AA meeting and he went and came over and sat down with me and he said, well, Don, that's where I'm going right now. You want to come? <laughs> that's great. And I was going, uh, well, uh, okay. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about it yeah, first, but yeah. I mean, he's dragging me to another one. And uh, I went to the meeting with, when we got in the car, he said, we can sit and talk in the parking lot or you can come up to the meeting and we can talk afterwards. Um, I was going, well, I guess I'll go to the meeting. And so we went up to the meeting and there were three people in there who knew Uh me and uh, they were so welcoming. And it was it was different than that first meeting. It wasn't about me. It wasn't step nine. It was about powerlessness. And at the end of the meeting, we ended with a Lord's Prayer, which was a big trigger for me. I I couldn't stand that prayer. Mm -hmm. We formed a circle. And held hands. So the lady next to me had an infant in her mm. arm. So she held her infant in her arm, and her baby reached out and grabbed my finger. And that was the connection to the circle. Yeah. And I just was overcome with a feeling that this is going to be okay. This is about life. What a moment of clarity that must have been for you. It was just this tiny opening of like, is maybe I can, maybe I can do this. And that guy became my sponsor. And since he was a drummer in a punk rock band, he's cool and he believes in God. It's like, oh, well, he said, you don't have to believe in God. Do you believe I believe in God? I was going, clearly you do. Then just use that and just say a prayer. God, keep me sober. And that was the opening to, it's an experiment. I like the idea of thinking that prayer and God and AA is experimental. We're not, it's not about belief. Yeah. It's about doing the action and in doing the action, things happened to me. And th- there was one day, I I guess I've been sober two weeks. So I didn't go to a treatment center. I just started going to meetings. After the second meeting. So that's your sobriety date? No, the first meeting's my sobriety date. It was like I went to that, that first meeting where they were talking about step nine. Right. Didn't like it yeah. and tried to find something else. Three days later, I met with Gary and went to the that second meeting. So that was in May of 94. Yeah. So I had the same obstacles, self-imposed obstacles regarding the, uh, the spiritual side of the program. I could not get over the fact that God was in those steps, but I was sick enough and things were bad enough in my life that I thought, well, I got nothing to lose by, by at least being somewhat open to it. And it took me a long time to finally get it. But two things I did perfectly that first year until I could get to that point was I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And irrespective of everything else that happened, the not drinking meant I didn't get drunk. Mm -hmm. And the going to meetings gave me enough time for people to get through to me about the other things I I needed to do. So you got yourself a sponsor relatively quickly. How soon did you get to work on the steps? Immediately. We used the 12 and 12. And Mm -hmm. we talked about powerlessness one week. And then we talked about 
came to believe in a power greater than myself the second week. And I began really working on this because I really fought the God thing. Mm-hmm. And I started making an inventory. Um, maybe, maybe it was about two or three months. I can't quite remember. It was very, very soon. And, but I started going to meetings every day. I just, mm-hmm. I, I went at noon and I went at 5.30 for a happy hour meeting. So I'm a house painter, self-employed, and started going to meetings, but I don't have time for these meetings. I, you know, I got to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't in a treatment center, so I didn't get removed from my life for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And what happened was my business just died off for six months. Mm. And hmm. it was very I had no excuse not to go to a meeting. Looking back on it, you know, isn't that a coincidence? Well, we'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, right? Yeah, it picked back up once I got sober. Like make time to go to a meeting. So things like that uh, happened. Mm-hmm. And then this one Sunday, I was sitting on the porch and I wanted to drink so bad I couldn't stand it. And I was going to drink. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. I both wanted to and I didn't want to desperately. And I felt like I was going to blow up. And it, it was all I could do to get up and get not get in the car and go get something to drink. And they had been talking about prayer in the meetings. And I said, well, OK, I don't believe in it, but I'm Gary says to do it. So I'm going to do it. I asked. Yeah. I said a prayer. I, I said, God, if you're real, get me out of this. And my next thought, it wasn't in another voice. It was my voice in my head, but it wasn't my thinking, mm-hmm. which was, yeah, Don, you always have tried to get out of everything. You can go through this. And I felt like I could go through it. I, yeah, I don't know. Was oh. the pupil ready at the right time i don't know what i don't understand it but something came over me and i don't believe in this stuff and i still don't believe in it (laughs) but it but it works yeah and when you're ready for the message and the message comes then that's a choice another choice that you have whether to listen to it or not and uh it sounds to me like like you you listened to it so once you got into AA and you started working the steps with your sponsor, how long did it take for you to feel like a bona fide AA member, like you were part of the group, that you were part of the inner circle of people? I think the fourth and fifth step, I started feeling like, okay, I'm really doing this thing. I It was very hard to make the inventory. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand a lot of what it was asking me to do. And I couldn't do it. And it, so in the fifth step, I would say, well, I, you know, I don't really have any fear, but, uh, you know, I do, I, I do have a lot of people that are against me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <laughs> No fear, but plenty of people against you. <laughs> yeah. And so I would list the people and, and Gary would say, Okay, well, there's a lot of anger here at this person. What is the fear underneath that? What are you afraid you're going to lose? What are you afraid they're going to do to you? And I was going, oh, okay, so that's fear. Mm -hmm. And I began to understand how 
what the inventory was about. And he described it beautifully. You dump in all your anger and resentment. And it's like a uh, sieve and out of the bottom comes your character defects. And I discovered the exact nature of the things that I did and the the things that I do that don't work, Mm -hmm. that I just go to naturally. Like, this person's not acting right. Or... I can't do that because uh, I might mess up. Uh, you know, I might make a mistake, so yeah. I'm not going to go there. And the behaviors that I do that don't work, that that don't work for me. And having done that with my sponsor, I think was where I really began to fit in. But I think where AA really became, oh, this is going to change my life, was after the first and not immediately after, but maybe about a few months after the first amends I, ma- I made to the ones that I, frankly, the ones that I didn't want to do, the amends where I really hurt other people was filled with remorse and shame about it, would never speak of it out loud, but it mm-hmm. was, and here I was contacting the person and taking responsibility. Not all of them were received well. I mean, others guys screw you but yeah having done it and then spent time giving that person to god and knowing that if there's any way from this point forward mm. that i get into that kind of situation again i am not that person the person i was drank and the person i was will drink again and i'm not going to live that way and I have done the best I can do to clear it up. Mm-hmm. And I've taken responsibility and tried to fix to the best of my ability everything. Yeah. Now I can live one day at a time. Now this makes sense because I've cleaned up that stuff the best I can and let go of it. And that's a transformational process, isn't it? It is. And having done those amends, it's like AA is about living. Yeah. And being effective in the world and trying to be helpful to other people, which gives meaning to life. Well, yeah, yeah. And that, that's where the service aspects of the program are so important. So somebody listening to this right now, you've got a, a really terrific story and the backstory is so rich and meaningful. But someone listening saying, well, the guy's got 28 years. I mean, uh, he's, he's got, he's, he must have it all together. You know, he sounds pretty happy, et cetera. Could you take us through your sobriety and point to some milestones, good and bad, along the way that perhaps were the sort of things that you never thought you could survive or things that you, good things that you never thought would ever happen that you can directly link back to your membership in Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, my brother was an alcoholic, uh, my younger brother, and he developed liver cancer and he died. And it was a long process. Uh, I was two years sober at the time. Mm -hmm. He was in hospice in the hospital for six months Mm. and uh, it was awful. He kind of turned into physically a monster. It was just like swollen Mm. and and just just unbearable suffering to witness, and I couldn't stand it. And Mm. uh, I wanted to drink uh, a few times during that period of time. 
I, I was, I was, um, I went to meetings. I prayed for guidance and help, mm-hmm. help me through this, help me be available. So yeah. because so I wouldn't run away. So I visited him. I was one of the sitters with him, and um, and I was there for him. Mm-hmm. And people in A would come by the hospital room and peek in the window and say, "Don, how you doing?" They don't know him. They're doing it for me. I, and I think at the end, of, when he died, I was so angry at God that I couldn't pray. I was and angry at the world. But the people in AA kept explaining to me, and I could look back and I could see that I was carried by AA through that experience, that, that nine-month period. And when I was drinking, when my grandmother got ill and died, mm-hmm. I went to see her once. I never went back mm-hmm. because I couldn't bear to go to that place and be there with her. I went to the bar. That's before you got sober. Before I got sober. I was ashamed of that inside. Yeah, I'll bet. And you had something to really compare the one to the other. and. I did. I showed up for him. I was there for him. And this is something I really like to think about. Not only that, my brother and my experience, we always fought from the time we were little with each other. Mm-hmm. I had made amends to him and mm. at one point earlier, and I was there for him, and we got very close. And mm. at one point, he was on all these drugs, so he would like be off in another world for hours. And um, he was in there. He hadn't said anything for an hour. And a girl came in and sat down who I didn't know. that was a friend of his. And she introduced herself, and we sat there in silence. And mm-hmm. She looked at me at a point and said, do you know the Lord and I went, well, uh, that sounds like charged language in my head. I'm going, well, how am I going to explain this? Because uh, the way that you put that, I don't think that we're going to agree exactly on that. Yeah. And maybe I can say, and AC, my brother's voice, rose from the bed and he said, he does. <laughs> and it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and it was beautiful, and he kind of saved my butt. I have some things like that, that during the time, like the worst time, the, it was also the most beautiful time. Uh, life is so crazy. We, yeah. It can be, and recently, now this past year, my son had cancer and had to have surgery. Mm-hmm. And so I've been sober for 20 seven years at that point. And I went to Brooklyn and we got an apartment. We stayed and took care of him during that time. And I would go to AA Zoom meetings and I the same thing. I didn't, I lost all spiritual connection. There's nothing Hmm. there for me. But I know from that experience with my brother that if Mm -hmm. I show up, even if I don't feel it, yeah, and if I, it's not about my faith. It's not about my belief. It's about right. my actions. And if I show up, go to meetings, be there for others, ask for help, that I can get through anything sober. And the outcome may not be what I want, but I can get through it. In the case of my brother, you know, 
that the mm-hmm. outcome was he died. And then my son, he, the surgery got it and he's doing very well. Oh, that's great. But I went through a dark valley while I was there for two weeks. I was miserable. I was not what I wanted to be, which was be helpful and uh, supportive and um, and bring some lightness. Instead, I was angry and I, I didn't I was short tempered. And I, I didn't, I wasn't great with my wife, and I, but I would make amends on a daily basis for my behavior as it was happening. But you were staying attached to AA during that time, weren't you? You were going to Zoom meetings? I completely was. I completely was. And I wasn't feeling it in AA. It was yeah. like, I, in fact, I was sitting in the AA meeting going, this is crap. But, you know, what it was, it's, you know, life sometimes is intolerable, but I don't have to drink. Will drinking fix it? No. And isn't it amazing the things, the the lengths that we have to go to to just not take that drink? Here you are, a guy with 27 years of sobriety, going through what you were going through, having gone to thousands of meetings, being of service to others, having all these great beliefs along the way, and then it all gets tested. And there's that sense of, man, I am just that close to drinking still. I am, absolutely. But the reality of it is, for me, if I'm in the middle of the program and, and things hit me from left field or I'm throwing curveballs that nobody in the world could hit, there's something about knowing that if I just hang on and hang on to my meetings and my friends and let people pray for me, that I will get through it. It would be really nice to have that same feeling of confidence about God working in my life as I'm going into a situation as I have after I've gone through it and see where God's worked in it. You know, it's like, oh, I got through that. God was working. So I go into the next situation. I'm still expecting it not to work out. And we do that for years and years, don't we? I don't know why it's so hard. I don't know. Maybe and maybe that's what a saint or you know a guru is is someone who can go through extreme difficulty and go ah i'm letting go of everything but not me i let go as hard as i possibly can i think you're probably pretty average like me in that respect and thousands of other people who have to go through it to go through it i mean it's just we have to learn the same lessons over and over again so during the time between the two years sober and the 27 years sober, did you stay involved in AA the entire time? Were there periods where you kind of had a hiatus? Uh, were there times at which you were doubtful about whether or not you wanted to continue? What did all that look like for you? Well, I wanted to cut back. It was a little, seemed a little excessive. I thought, so the joke is uh, what I do is cut back on meetings one at a time until I whittle it down to where I drink and then add one. Yeah. And that's how many meetings I need to go to. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I kind of did that without drinking. I've, I've played with that over years and I've played with like going to one meeting a week, but having a sponsor and sponsees mm-hmm. or maybe nah, I don't have time for these sponsees. I'm just, but I'm going to go to meetings or, and, but not pray because I don't, that, that, that's, it just takes up too much time and meditation. I've struggled with that the whole time. I still do. I don't want to do it. I don't want to sit in silence. 
for five minutes, but <laughs> I just did it. I've been I've been doing it the past week. I'm, my report card is good this week. I've yeah. meditated. Yeah. Today I didn't do it. Today I didn't do it. But I did. I did about four days in a row for five minutes. It's early in the day, Don. It's early in the day. <laughs> okay, I still got time. <laughs> <laughs> you still got time. But I did do well, my pro- always without fail in the morning. Well. Ask God to keep me sober and ask God to remove my character defects, which I'll just list. There's four that I list. Those are the things that still act up, mm-hmm. particularly the one that really gets it's a superiority and victimhood. Those are the two. I call it victimhood, martyrdom, it's self-centeredness. Yeah, it's like two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Yes, and I'll fall into that to manipulate other people about how you know you should feel sorry for me because <laughs> if you knew what was going on with me you yeah and then there's that other feeling that comes up i think for those of us with long-term sobriety is that god i've been sober all this time so why don't these certain things go better for me on a more regular basis or why do i still have to be dealing with this after all these years and i think the reality is it's like we we wake up with a clean slate every day and we're charged with decisions to make about how we're going to handle them. It's a practice. It's not a destination. Yeah. Yeah. It's a journey. It's just a a different way of dealing with life. And everybody has problems with life. And life is is horrible. (laughs) And it's wonderful. And it's both at the same time. Yeah. How am I going to live in the world that's what AA ultimately is about. And the point of letting go, there's always more letting go to do. Yeah. It's always there. There's always something I'm not going to let go. I think that's being human. Yeah. Or if you let go of that, something else pops up that you won't let go of at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it, it is. And so, so how am I going to approach life? How am I going to yeah. be in the world? And I don't want to waste. You know, I had a... I had four strokes. I think now it's three years ago. Oh, my goodness. And ultimately, I ended up with uh, carotid artery surgery. It was horrible. And Mm. uh, it was very difficult. It was hard to get over. But it worked, and I quit having strokes. But there was a threat with the surgery. That surgery, they were putting it off because... They said that um, you need to know that the surgery, there's a chance of causing a stroke or or death. So I went into it just going, I release it. I just, I release it. And wow. I'll get what I get. I don't really have a choice. I don't want to, you know, I, this is what they're recommending and I don't know what to do. And, you know, no, luckily I have no deficit from the strokes other than the top of my right arm is numb. But mm. at one point I had a stroke and I couldn't speak. Words wouldn't come out. Yeah. And uh, it was terrifying. I'll bet. And, you know, I think it is easier to let go of big things like that. I was able to just simply go, I'm in your hands. I mean, I've lived a good life. Yeah. I'm going to do this because I really don't have any more options. And you know, what will be, will be. And I got through that and it was better. 
And at this point, it's like, I love this line. Everybody believes that they have two lives. And the second one begins when you realize you only have one. And at this point, (laughs) I realize I only have one life. And I don't want to waste my energy spinning my wheels in the parking lot on something I have no control over. Yeah. And so the point of letting go now has moved way, way back where I'm not, I'm like, I don't, I'm not fighting politics that yeah. I'm not fighting traffic in, yeah. in the car. That's very easy at this point for me to let go of. It's harder though, with something with my wife. <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. And, and certainly as we let go of the big things and we get through them, there's something in the back of our minds at alcoholism that's still sitting on our shoulders somewhere that says, okay, I got through the big things. I must be able to handle the small things. Yeah. It's, it's an illusion. It, you know, it is. The, 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 the ego doesn't know the difference between a hangnail and a heart attack. It gives them both equal weight. And they're both painful. <laughs> And they're both painful in their own way. So, yeah. uh, you know, this has been a really remarkable interview, Don. I, I really appreciate you going so deep into the meaning of your sobriety and the importance of your sobriety and how it's affected your life in such a positive way from a time at which you might not have ever gotten through it without AA. Um, is there anything that kind of stands out in your mind at, at this particular juncture of your sobriety that you would say to a younger version of yourself, let's say a man that you see in the room who's new, who reminds you a lot of yourself, what words of wisdom could you give that man in a nutshell? Well, if it were me listening, I would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> So there's no getting through. There's no getting through to me. Um, so now I get to be a host and and I've retired and a job. Has, I'm a special worker for the Grapevine magazine. Yeah. And I have a job talking about recovery and how it's changed my life and interviewing people and doing this podcast and putting mm-hmm. all my creativity into it. Yeah. I get to be famous anonymously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get to look at my ego and like let go of that and share th- this gift that I've been given by AA. Um, I don't know how you get here from there. I would say, you, because I was an alcoholic, and I would yeah. say, it's going to be okay. Give yeah. up, surrender, and let it happen because yeah. incredible things. I'm not alone. All the people in AA who surrender and give this thing a chance, their lives get better and they can live them without having to drink and be self-destructive. That's a beautiful message to leave with people as they conclude listening to this podcast, Don. You're a really extraordinary man, and I appreciate the fact that you're being of such incredible service to AA via the AA Grapevine uh, podcast. I wish you much success with that, and uh, I think it's really inspirational to others to hear your story. It may help one person, one place. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people listening to this particular podcast, but we never know. I mean, if it helps one person, one place, one time, it will have all been worth it. Thank you for asking me to speak. 
Yeah, you, you've, you've really done a terrific job. And good luck with everything else that you're doing. And as I tell all my guests, I love you. I respect your sobriety, and I honor your willingness to continue to do what God would have you do on a daily basis. So uh, we'll have the opportunity to chat at another time, I hope. Thanks, Howard. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Don M., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? I especially request that my Houston friends share it with AAs in other parts of the country and world. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.